Well, good morning and happy 4th of July. Glad you guys are here with us today worshiping. If it's your first time here with us, a special welcome to you. Or if you're tuning online for the first time, we look forward to meeting you face-to-face in the next few weeks. We're going to be in Psalm 22. You just saw that video right there. We've been going through this series in the Psalms about God's playlist because every single one of these 150 song, Psalms is a song that God put together. So this is us kind of tuning in to God's playlist. So we're going to be in Psalm 22. And this Psalm is an interesting Psalm because um, there's a lot of beauty. It's actually a, a really famous Psalm, but there's a lot of mystery in it as well. There's a little there's majesty and then there's confusion all kind of mingled together. And I hope that as we walk through this famous passage today that we have a little more clarity of what God would say to us today through his word. And what's interesting, the reason why this is famous is because whether you grew up in church or this is your first Sunday in church, you've probably heard the first verse of Psalm 22. It's a famous, famous quote, famous line, but verse 1 just says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Like this is one that we know we've heard about. And it's because this is something that Christ quotes as he hangs on the cross to die for your sins and mine. And it's interesting because you hear Jesus say that on the cross, and we have to ask a little bit, like, it's, it's hard for somebody to speak while they're being crucified. It's extremely difficult. We only have seven statements that we know of in the Bible that Jesus said while he hung on the cross. So the big question is, why did Jesus quote Psalm 22? With his final breaths, with all the energy that he had left, he decided to quote Psalm 22. Why? Why? I mean, Jesus could have quoted anything in the Old Testament. He could have quoted anything in it. He could have quoted any of the 150 Psalms that we have that are a part of God's playlist, and yet he chose to quote Psalm 22. Why? Well, I hope as we unpack it today, we see at least a few of the reasons why Christ would have done this. And this Psalm 22 is it's a psalm of lament, psalm of suffering and sorrow, which Christ would have clearly seen and understood as he hung on the cross. And actually, a, a large portion of God's playlist in the Psalms are songs of sorrow and lament, which I'm really grateful for, because we all, every one of us in this room, have or will experience suffering. Every one of us. We might not always experience the mountaintops or have the greatest joys and pleasures in life. We may or may not have that, but we all will have suffering. And so God's word speaks to it. And I think Christ, as he quotes it, is wanting us to understand how we navigate suffering and sorrow and pain in our lives. I think there's a lot of beauty to be found for us, a lot of wisdom for us to see on how we navigate times of suffering and pain as we look at the word of God. So let's start in verse 1. And we're going to actually attack Psalm 22 like a three-course meal. We're going to read a little bit, devour that, then we're going to read a little bit more, talk about that, and then read a little bit more. So we're going to get through all of the chapter, but just little pieces at a time. We're going to read the first 11 verses. So look with me, starting in verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued, and you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I, I'm a, I'm a worm, I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, they mock me, they make their mouths at me, and they wag their heads, and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at your mother's breast, at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Pray with me. Compassionate God. In a world filled with sorrow and pain, I ask that you would give our weary hearts relief today. Would you be our hiding place? Would you be our shield in our day of sorrow? Lord, would you show yourself to be faithful to those who feel like you've forsaken them today? And to the one that is full of joy and strength this morning, God, I pray that you would show yourself as their joy and their strength from the cross. Lord, I ask that you would uphold us by your promises and sustain us with your grace today. Now you, I just invite you to take a moment, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, just pray and ask that God would speak to you through his word today. Pray now. And then pray for me that I would be helpful to you as I unpack God's word for you today. Help me to pray that God would help me to speak clearly this morning. Pray for me now. Lord, we need you. Pray that you would soften our ears to hear what you would say to us today, God, that you would soften our hearts uh, to believe what you say today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so how does God desire for you and I to navigate our times of suffering and pain in our lives? And the first thing we have to see is that we need the presence of God. We need his presence in our pain. We need it. And it's interesting as this psalm starts in the, the pain and the suffering that, that King David is in as he writes this song. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, King David, David is the, the David and Goliath David, all right? He's writing this in his kingship, but he's going through suffering. And as he writes this, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 2, oh my God, I cry out to you. Now what's great about this is there is a temptation, a strong temptation for you and I, when we walk through pain and suffering, for us to wander away from God. It's so simple. Instead of running to God, we run from God. And what we find right here at the very beginning, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of him feeling forsaken, 
He doesn't cry out and say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? There's a personal nature to it. He says, my God, you are still my God. In the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, you're still my God. He still loves him. He still wants the presence of God in his life. You see, in a moment of suffering, he doesn't deny God. He doesn't distance himself from God. Rather, he comes up and draws near to God. And he remembers who his God is. In verse 3, he says, you are holy. You're holy. He's like, okay, God, I know that you're holy. And what that means is he is set apart. He's completely different from anything else. He has more power and might, more justice and truth than anything the world has to offer. And he says, God, I see you and I know you. And everything in my life right now says that the world is shattered and broken. I need your holiness. And I know that you reign, that you are king. In verse 3, he says, you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's, let that settle in just for a minute. We're singing to God here this morning. And this is saying, as you sing to God, what you're doing is you're praising him. And he sits on your voices in his kingship. He's enthroned by our praises. That's why it's so important for us to sing to the Lord. We don't just do this to fill time on a Sunday morning. We sing to the Lord to prepare our hearts for his word. And we sing to the Lord in response to him. So being here... At the beginning of the service to praise Him and being here at the end of the service to praise Him, that is huge. Our praise of the Lord is where we find the enthronement of God. So He looks and He's like, God, I know that You're holy and I know that You're worthy of praise. I even know that You've been faithful in the past. In verse 4 He says, our fathers trusted in You and You delivered them. They prayed to You and You, you heard them and You rescued them and redeemed them. They weren't put to shame. So he sees, he's like, I know this to be true. I, f I feel like I've been forsaken by God, that he's abandoned me. But I know that you're holy. I know that you're king. I know that you're mighty. And you've worked in the past and been faithful. But what happens for him is what happens with many of us. There's this, this struggle between our, our faith and our everyday life. And there's a war that's going on in, in David's life in this moment. It's like, God, I, I know who you say you are and what you've done, but I still struggle in the midst of my pain. I'm still struggling. I know that you're holy and I know that you hear when we pray to you, but I just don't feel that way right now. And he's struggling. Anybody relate to that? You pray and you call out to God, but you feel like your, your prayers don't even make it through the ceiling? You feel like God has kind of turned a deaf ear in this moment? This is how he feels. And as he looks at God and he says, you're faithful and you're holy and you're king, man, if there's nothing wrong with you, then there's got to be something wrong with me. There's got to be something wrong with me. If you are perfect and holy and mighty, then there's got to be something wrong with me because why am I suffering and in this pain? And that's where he goes at verse 6. He's like, there's got to be something wrong with me. I'm, a, I'm a, a worm. I'm not a man. What he's saying is I'm even below the dirt. Like I'm as far down as you can go. That's how low he is in this moment. What he's saying is I feel like a nobody. I feel like a nobody. And in this moment of feeling like a nobody and feeling like God is silent, that silence is being filled up with mockery. In verse 7, 
that says, all these people are mocking me. They're making fun of me. They're saying, he trusts in the Lord. See, they're not making fun of him because of the way he dresses. They're not making fun of him because of his personality. They're not making fun of him because of his friends. They're making fun of him because of his faith in the Lord. They're saying, look, he trusts in the the Lord. He's going through all the suffering. Don't help him. Don't help him out. Let God help him out. And they're mocking him in that moment. And this is where many people turn from God in their suffering. They feel like, I'm a nobody. They aren't important to God. That is so far from the truth. And I do. I know people that they get to this point where they feel like they're a nobody and they feel like God hasn't heard them. And so they abandon God. What you find in this passage is he doesn't abandon God. He says, God, I need your presence. I need to be near you. I don't want to run from you. I want to run to you. And so, yes, I feel like a nobody, but guess what? In verse 9, I'm your nobody. He says, yet you took me from the womb. You created me. You made me. You made me trust in you. You have sustained me, God. On you, I was cast from birth. You have been my God. Over and over again in verses 9 and 10, he's saying, you, God, you, you. I feel like a worm. I feel like nobody cares about me, but I am your somebody. You have not forgotten me. You've not abandoned me. I need your presence desperately, Lord. I need you. And what I love about this is when he's in the midst of his suffering, he's not even looking for answers to his questions right now. I mean, all of us in the midst of suffering, we might ask uh, the why question. Why, God, is this lasting so long? Or why is this happening to me? Or why are we going through this suffering? Why did it happen to this person? But that's not what he's saying in the midst of his suffering. He's like, what I need more than answers to my questions is I need your presence, God. I need you. And so in in verse 11, he says, be not far from me. Be not far from me. You see, we can go through extremely difficult, hard times of sorrow without our questions being answered. We can. We can make it through. You've experienced that. You know that. But I tell you what you can't go through suffering and sorrow with? Yourself and yourself alone. You cannot go through suffering and sorrow and make it through in isolation. You can't do it. And God knows that. And we're seeing David proclaim that. I need your presence in the pain. This is the beauty of Christianity. This is the beauty of Christianity. It's the only religion in all the world where God says, I will be your companion in the midst of your sorrow. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I will be right there with you. It's the only religion that promises that. And this language of be not far from me, it's the only religion that's personal and loving like this. This language, be not far from me, this begging, we don't use that in everyday relationships. We don't. I mean, how many of you, in, in maybe your financial crisis or suffering, have gone to your banker and say, please, banker, be not far from me. Like your banker would be like, whoa, well, this is weird. This is weird right now. I mean, how many of you had to file insurance claims and you call your insurance guy and you're like, be not far from me. Please be near me. Like that's awkward. That's weird. Why? Because it's a professional relationship, right? What we're seeing in here is in the midst of our pain, God's not like, it's a professional relationship. Keep all your problems over here. 
house. They were here, and then these two won't meet. No. God is a personal God. And he calls, he's like, I need your presence in the pain. I need you near me. This is the beauty of the gospel. That God has made a way for you and I to be in the presence of God. He's the only one that can give us peace in the midst of our pain. You see, I believe that when Jesus hangs on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Jesus is experiencing something in the midst of pain and suffering that you and I will never experience. Lord willing, we'll never experience this. You see, it's a whole different level of pain because he's being separated from God because of the sin that he's taking for us. The Bible actually says he became sin. He became sin who knew no sin. He took on our sin of greed, our sin of lust and selfishness, of pride. He became all of that on the cross. And as he took on all of our sin and our shame on us, it was like he was isolated from God the Father in that moment. He cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? This is a whole different type of pain than he had even experienced in his life. I mean, think about this. Jesus, before he's even hung on the cross, he has been beaten He's been rejected by his friends and abandoned by people. And yet he doesn't cry out in the pain of that moment. Even while he's having thorns pressed into his head, his skull, he doesn't speak and cry out in that moment. While he's having nails go through his hands and his feet, he's still silent. In the midst of all that suffering and all of that pain. And yet on the cross, when he becomes sin on our behalf, there's a whole different level of pain and suffering that he's going through. A whole different level. And for the first time, he speaks out in his pain. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is expressing something infinitely beyond the physical suffering that he's going through. And the reason why I believe that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 in this moment is because he's saying, I am being forsaken so that you would never have to be forsaken. I am becoming sin to wipe away your sin and to forgive you of all your sin. He is becoming what we could not become. He is taking our place on the cross so that we could be welcomed into his presence. I mean, think about it. When Christ dies on the cross, those of you that know the Bible, earthquake happens. And the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies, the place where the, the presence of God was said to have laid and stayed. That veil is torn from top to bottom. And now his presence rushes out to you and to me. And now we can come into his presence. Jesus, through his pain and his suffering, has made a way for us in the midst of our pain and our suffering to be in the presence of God. And then out of this work of Christ, what we find is... All these promises to you and to me in the midst of our pain that we can be in his presence and find peace. Jesus at the end of the gospel of Matthew says this, I am with you always. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is saying, I was forsaken so that you would never have to be forsaken. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says this, I will never leave you or forsake you. He will never do it because of the work of Christ, because of what Jesus did. Romans chapter 8 says this, for I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me unpack the beauty of that, knowing that we can have the presence of God in our pain at all times. Romans 8, think about this. I am sure that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. Neither good health this week or a terrible diagnosis from the doctor can separate you from the love of God. Neither. Neither angels nor rulers can separate you from the love of God in the midst of your pain. No political party, no spiritual power can separate you from God's love in the midst of your suffering. Nor things present, nor things to come. No matter how bad they are in the present or how bad they get in the future, cannot separate you from the love of God. Nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation. There is nowhere in all the earth that you can go from the love of God. It is always there. Where in the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's for us to have comfort and peace in the midst of our pain. That we can remain in the presence of God. But he doesn't just give us his presence. He also gives us guidance in our grief. This psalm, Psalm 22, as Jesus quotes it, it should draw our minds back to the guidance of God. God guides us. And he guides us to at least two places. But he's going to guide us to the cross. And he's going to guide us to comfort. Look back at Psalm 22, picking up at verse 12. It says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Now he's using imagery here in the next few verses that we're going to walk through as he talks about different animals. And some people debate on what this imagery is. Is it specifically talking about the Roman army at the time that Christ was crucified by? Or is it just talking of, of people in general that have no conscience or sense of guilt or shame like animals do? So I don't know which it is, but it's bad, whatever it is. Pick it up in verse 13. He says, they open their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers, they encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones, and... They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Now, this is where Psalm 22 gets mysterious. Because the first 11 verses that I read, we can kind of relate to that. We hear that and we're like, yeah, isolation, man, I can feel that. Feeling like God is kind of forsaking me in that moment, man, I can feel and relate to that. Having people mock me and make fun of me, I can relate to that. I, I get and I understand the feelings of all that. But then it gets super specific right here. And you're just like, what is that? Like, I, I can't relate to being so thirsty that the tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth. And... I can't relate to 
the, the, the moment where people are stripping me of my clothes and they're casting lots and taking my clothes away from me. Like, what in the world is going on in this moment? Well, in the New Testament, it opens up a little bit of the beauty of this. In the book of Acts, it actually tells us that, that David spoke this for what was to come. And Acts chapter 2 says that this was written about the Messiah that would come. So yes, there's a general sense of suffering in life, but this is very specific, and it's speaking of Christ in this moment. It is pointing us to the cross. And this is what he's wanting us to see. Now what's amazing is we read this, and this might sound really familiar to us just because we've read the New Testament, or we know the story of Christ being crucified, so we hear these stories. But we've got to remember, this was written a thousand years before Christ came on the scene. A thousand years. I mean, to put that in perspective, the detail that's given here of what's ultimately going to happen to Christ is, is like the Vikings being able to write in their time and their day describing an iPhone. And at that time they're writing, they're like, there's this device, it's going to be called an iPhone, and you can swipe this way, and it'll unlock it, and you can find your apps, and you can do all this kind of stuff. Like, Vikings writing about that? You'd be like, what in the world? This is weird. This is mysterious in this moment. That's what's happening. That is what's happening in this. A thousand years has gone by since this is said. I mean, to, to put it in another context, today we celebrate our nation's birthday, right, with the 4th of July. That was, if I do math right, 245 years ago, right? So you multiply that by four, that's the length of how long it's been that the statement was made to the point where Christ fulfills it. And this is mysteriously beautiful. That it's describing the suffering that Christ would have in order to give us peace. And so as Jesus quotes and as people are thinking about Psalm 22, their minds should be racing to that moment at the cross. They should be thinking about it. The whole idea that he was poured out like water and his heart was like wax, like verse 14 says. In John 19, it tells us that when Christ was hanging on the cross and he was, he was about to die and, and he died. They wanted to make sure he was dead. And so they took a spear and they put it up through his side and they pierced his heart. And blood and water flowed out in that moment. Because his heart was like wax. The tongue sticks to my roof of my mouth, verse 15. John 19, we see that Jesus cries out and says, I thirst in that moment. He's crying out from the cross screaming, I thirst. It's back here again in Psalm 22. And I didn't even know this till this week, but what happens in that moment when, if you know your Bible, what happens is they, they get a sponge and they put vinegar and, and water in it and they hand it up to Christ to drink. I used to think that was a moment of kindness that the Roman soldiers were doing, and it's not. They are mocking Jesus in that moment. They're mocking him. Just like this passage said, they will mock him. Historians said the only reason that they had sponges, that Roman soldiers would have had sponges at that time, was when they traveled and they needed to use the bathroom, they had something to wipe with. And this is a terrible picture that Christ, this moment cries out, I thirst, and they hand him a piece of toilet paper. It's because he's bearing the weight and the guilt of our sin. It says in verse, 20, or, or verse 16 of Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. It was another 700 years before crucifixion would be invented. The Persian army invented it. The Roman army perfected it. And this passage is saying that the Messiah is going to come and this is how he's going to die. 
it says they, they divide up my garments. Gospel of Matthew says the Roman soldiers are there. They're casting lots for his clothes. You see, Jesus in this moment is wanting us, as he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our mind to rush back to this passage and see that God has been guiding this moment. In the midst of suffering and pain, he wants us to remember that God is not absent. He's not foreign. He's involved in it. And I think Jesus, of all the things he could have quoted in the Old Testament, quoted Psalm 22 and, and a song specifically because we remember songs. We remember them. Like you hear somebody humming a tune or you hear a part of a song and we hum along or we finish it in our minds. The Jewish people at this time, they would have memorized the psalms. This was a requirement for them as kids. They would learn and they would memorize it. And so they would be singing these songs in a congregation. They'd be singing these songs on their own. They would know this. And so Christ, when he hangs on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People would pick that up and start singing the song just because that's what we do. We just do. Like we, we hear a song and we sing along with it. I mean, they do it at every Panthers game you go to. They play the song Sweet Caroline, right? If you know that song, even if you don't know the whole song, you know the part of it, right? Sweet Caroline, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, so five people know the song. Awesome. That, that song, like it's just in our mind and it comes out. So this is what I want you to realize. In that moment, while Jesus hangs on the cross and he sings the words or quotes the words of this song, the people there would have memorized the song and would have kept singing it. And they would have looked as God called his shot, one after the other after the other. They're sitting there at the foot of the cross. Jesus just sung that song. And they're like, man, he pierced his hands and his feet. And that's Psalm 22. He's crying out, I thirst. Man, that's Psalm 22. They look at the Roman soldiers there on the ground mocking him. Man, that's Psalm 22. They see them casting lots for his clothes. Man, that's Psalm 22. When they see his side pierced with a spear, they're like, my goodness, this is heart like wax. And it would have triggered in their minds this memory that God called his shot. God guided all of history to this moment. He was not absent in the midst of the pain and the suffering. He was there and he was working. He wasn't far off. He was an active God. And we need to remember this too. When everything seems out of control in our lives, God is still in control. He's still reigning. Somebody is behind all this. God has actually put an expiration date on you and my suffering if we know and we trust in him. God is working for his glory and for our good. God is navigating all these things and putting them in order to bring us comfort. And so, yes, Jesus leads us to the cross with this psalm. But he's also going to lead us to comfort in knowing that he is the sovereign one walking with us through this. What's the very next psalm? The very next psalm is Psalm 23. Those of you that know your Bible, Psalm 23, what is that? The Lord is my shepherd, right? He walks with me through the valley of the shadow death. That's no accident. God is guiding his people to the comfort that he brings. Psalm 22 is known as the most suffering psalm, the most psalm full of sorrow. And he follows it up by Psalm 23, known for God's comfort, the greatest psalm of comfort. And then Psalm 24 and 25 is the glory of God, 
that is put in there and guided for a reason for you and I. Knowing that, yes, we're going to go through suffering and pain, but God is going to be there with us and give us comfort. And one day he's going to end all of our suffering and our pain as the king of glory returns again. This is no accident. God is guiding all of these things. There's somebody behind all of this. So we trust in him. But that's not where it ends. It doesn't end with just looking to the cross and seeing God's comfort. It ends with the salvation that God offers us. Look back at verse 21. Right in the middle of verse 21, it says, You rescued me from the horns of the wild beast. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel. For he, this is important, don't miss verse 24. This is so important. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when they cried to him. For he come, uh, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted, those that are suffering and are in pain, they will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember in terms of the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Your king, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Church, we need the salvation of God in our suffering. We need the salvation of God in our suffering. And that's what we find the psalm in. Not in his sorrow, but in the salvation of the Lord. And it changes in an instant. Verse 21, commentators don't know what to do with it. It seems so weird. In verse 21, at the very beginning, he says, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then poof, at the end, it's, you've rescued me from the, the horns of the wild oxen. What happened in this shift? It, they even went to a new verse. It's right there in verse 21. Please save me. You've rescued me. Something amazing has happened in this moment, and it's the salvation of the Lord that has come to him. And he moves from being surrounded by all these mockers and people that are making fun of him and all the suffering to now he's surrounded by a congregation of people praising the Lord. He has moved from his suffering to say, I will sing to the king. There's a huge shift that happens in the psalm. He praises the Lord. In verse 24, he hasn't God hasn't despised us that are going through suffering or pain. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't hid his face from us. Our suffering and our sin and our sorrow may shroud the face of God, but God is going to shine through. He's going to be there for us because this is who our God is. Now some of us think, that sounds great, but that's, that can't be for me. The suffering and pain in my life, I did that. So maybe Christ can redeem me and forgive me, but he'll never restore me. That's not true. God brings forgiveness and redemption and restoration to you. 
No matter how deep your suffering is, no matter if you cause your suffering or not, salvation comes to everyone. Verse 27, this salvation is to the ends of the earth. It's for every single person that would look to Christ. Forgiveness waits for them. Verse 29, it says, to the prosperous of the earth, they'll eat and they'll worship. Hey, this salvation is offered to rich people. Rich people, this is for you. And then at the end of verse 29, those who can't even keep themselves alive, those that can't provide for themselves food, those that are poor and are struggling and are perishing, this gospel is for you. This good news of hope in the midst of your pain is it's for you. In verse 30, it actually talks about you and me. This salvation is for you and for me. It said it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, to those who are yet unborn. When this was written, we weren't born. When Christ hung on the cross and he died, we weren't there. But the salvation is extended to all peoples at all times. The gospel is here for us the next generation, and we pray that we would play our part in extending it to the generation to come. Because those that have been delivered by the salvation proclaim the salvation to others. This is what God has called us to do as the church and as followers of Jesus. We don't stop in the midst of our pain and suffering and just say, well, our life is really hard. No, we look to the God who gives us salvation and puts a stamp of expiration on all of our suffering. From death to rejection, to mockery, all of that will be wiped away. And every tear from our eye will be wiped away for those that look to Christ and trust in Him. And the beauty of this is that none of this hinges on you or me. Look at the end of verse 31. Who has brought the salvation to us in the midst of our suffering? God has. He has done it. He has done it. And I believe when Christ hangs on the cross, and one of the last words he says is what? It is finished. I think he's quoting all the way back here to Psalm 22. We're not, hey, God has done it, but no, I have done it. All the work of salvation is now completed on the cross. It is finished. It's done. It's completed. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did when he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He has completed the work of salvation. Jesus doesn't say it is finished on the cross because he's, he's finished. He's not sitting there saying, well, I guess I'm done. All this didn't work out how I hoped it would, and so now I'm here suffering, I'm dying on the cross. I am finished. That's not what he says. He says it is finished. So what's finished? What is he talking about in that moment? He's talking about your condemnation and my condemnation. It is finished. There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. What else is finished? Our sin and the punishment for our sin. It is finished because of the work of Christ. Because we trust in Christ. That is finished. Our guilt and our shame that we feel, the feeling of we'll never be restored, that's behind us. It is finished because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because of what he has done. It is finished. And you need to know, if you are here today, Christ is not finished with you. The fact that you woke up this morning and you've come to church, you might feel like God has forsaken you. You might feel like you're finished. Christ is not finished with you because you are here today. You are here today. 
The saving work of Christ is an invitation invited to all of us. And when he saves us, then he sanctifies us. He makes us more and more like him. He is not finished. He is continuing to work and to move. So be encouraged in the midst of your suffering. In the midst of the moment you feel like you're stalling out in life. Christ is not finished. He is working in you. The work of salvation is finished. Your sin is finished. Your guilt is finished. But the salvation is continuing to work through the work of Jesus Christ, our King. Bow your heads with me. Christ, we trust in your work, not in our work. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we look to you now. For those of us that have never trusted in you, we've known about sin or we've known about the Savior, but we're in the midst of suffering now and God has used that to bring you to this point where you would repent of your sins and trust in him. Do not let this moment pass without bowing your knee and finding peace in the midst of your pain. Hope in the midst of your suffering. And that all is going to come from Christ. So cry out to him. Confess your sins of selfishness. Confess your sins of lust. Confess your sins of of greed and, and anxiety and worry and a lack of trust in the Lord. Confess those and be forgiven and cleansed of all of your sin. Jesus said, it is finished. Come to him and be forgiven of all of your sins. If you know Christ, then let this moment be a moment that encourages your heart to proclaim this good news of salvation to those that don't know yet. Jesus desires for this saving work to go to neighborhoods and nations, all peoples and all classes and all generations would come to know and trust in him. And so today, pray for those that are far from the Lord. Pray that they would become near to him. Pray that God would give you boldness and an opportunity to share the great love and peace that God offers them in the midst of their pain and their suffering. Pray that God would use you to give hope today. Pray to the Lord. thank you that you aren't just the God of the mountaintops but the valleys that you promised you'll go with us wherever we are thank you for the hope and the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us that you will be with us always God thank you for that give us peace in that this week give us rest for our weary hearts in that this week God, give us strong voices that we would sing to you. May you be enthroned through our voices as we sing to you, the one who finished the work that we could be saved. It's in his name that we pray and we sing. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing Jesus.